there we go so now we're we are officially recording the zoom call so this will be um episode one of our kind of stream series i guess and hopefully um we get a ton more so i'm not sure if we have actually anyone watching at the moment but hopefully we will We've got four viewers <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> both both pair of parents um we <laughs> we will have flight free uk which is a, a really great organization um joining us pretty soon in 20 minutes normally um flight free uk basically advocates for people to take pledges um around uh flying so to stop flying emissions um and to kind of commit to i guess going closer to home and all that um for vacations and such so that will be in about 20 minutes um i hope slash expect it to last about 40 minutes 45 minutes uh but until then we're gonna just have a look at the latest report the latest ipcc report um which will which has been released uh today at like 11 a.m this morning so really uh super new i took a few notes on it um i don't know jamie have you had a have you heard about it this morning like did you see it on the news no no <laughs> i thought you were gonna say yes because no. it's been everywhere it's like i got so many uh notifications from from all sorts of of uh of news outlets saying ipcc uh AR6 has been out and like everybody asking what the heck that means and what the heck it is. Um, yeah. So just a little quick background, I guess. Uh, the 2000, 2013, we had AR5, uh, yeah, AR5 from Working Group 1. So this is the paper, uh, the report that synthesizes um, all of the kind of climate science that we've had over the past years and years and years. Um, the latest one was in 2013. This one is in this year, 2021. So yeah, it takes a few years. They kind of wait a few years to get new data um, before they synthesize it. Um, as you can maybe see on my screen, uh, we this report synthesizes 14,000 studies, which is a, a shit ton. Uh, 234 authors from 66 countries. Um, so this is like a worldwide um effort directed by the UN and the findings uh, as you can see on line three here the findings are presented as statements or facts uh, associated with an assessment level of confidence so you can get things uh, statements that are very likely so that's like 90 percent to 100 percent uh, virtually certain which is 99 to 100 percent and then you can fall down to the likely which is 66 to 100 and then down and down and down until you have the exceptionally unlikely which is zero to one percent confidence um and yeah compared to ar5 this report basically improved a lot on um observationally based estimates uh information from the archives of uh, paleoclimate um include a lot of new methods and things like that so it's it's really like more precise than in a lot of ways than uh the ar5 which was released seven to eight years ago um before we get into the details um i might try to get the display capture quickly to um go simply on my on the zoom um or no no 
screw it. Let's do just do a general display capture. Never mind. Okay, Jamie, you there? Yeah, yeah. Yep. Okay, cool. So the um the full report is uh three thousand nine hundred and forty nine pages, which is a wow. absolute monster behemoth of a report. Like, look at this. I mean, oh my god, it's just ridiculous. Like, you you just take the little scroll and you go like even halfway and it's just random data <laughs> and studies that they've compiled. Um, and actually so many people, th this made such a buzz today that the IPCC website crashed. Like I've, I've never seen that happen. <laughs> the a, uh, UN website crashes because of too many people going on. They even had to have like, uh, was it called Cloudflare or something? The, uh, the software that prevents... Um, that prevents, uh, ah, what's the name of that thing that people do, DOD attacks. So um, like basically bots from, from taking over the page. Um, so yeah, so that was uh, quite impressive. But then there's the uh, summary for policymakers, which is 42 pages. And that's kind of like bullet points and things like that. And as you can, uh, if you are watching the stream, mm. you can see on the screen, it's, um, yeah, it's it's forty two pages and it's it's quite like well summarized. Let's say you have points and they're they're very straight to the point. Like they will just say, you know, factual um, direct sentences. Uh, they often kind of try and avoid, I guess, uh, convoluted language or or um, ideological language and things like that. Like for example, you can't find once. I think sounds quite hard. Yeah, and you can't find not a single time the word uh, capitalism or the word um, like consumerism or things like that. Because again, this is working group one. There's three working groups. Uh, working group one de deals with the physical science. So it summarizes all of the kind of knowledge, like pure knowledge that we have data um, and tries to see like what that is telling us. And then uh, you have AR6 working group two, which is always taking care of impacts, adaptation, and vulnerability. Um, if we go down here on this page on their scope, you can see that their scope includes co-benefits, risks, and costs of mitigation, um, ethics and equity, uh, epistemology, perception of risk and benefits, et cetera, et cetera. So that's coming in February, I believe. Uh, report... Where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Yeah, I think it's it's in February of next year. So that that will have to wait a bit longer for. And then there's working group three, the final one. And this their scope is more around um, around mitigation. So how do we actually mitigate these effects that are described in uh, working group two? That's so, going to be the most controversial one, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, so this is the one that may, you know, or well, will include things like um, negative uh, emissions, so emission capture technology, things like uh, geoengineering, things like um, mm. talking about consumerism, all that stuff, you know, that, that's all part of working group three. And working group two will be more like, how does it affect us? Um, so yeah, very exciting. February and March, I think, 2022. Do you have an opinion on Working Group 3's recommendations? Do you think they're quite good? Um, you mean based on like previous ones? 
Uh, yeah, sure. Because I mean, this one, like the this this one hasn't really said it's in, like I said, it's in February oh, I see. or March. Yeah. I guess of, yeah, in, ge- in general then. Yeah, in general. Um, well, you know the the UN, uh, the IPCC, the UN. They they have been they have to be politically neutral and there's a lot of pressure i think um, because it's more social science based rather than physical science based um this working group there's a lot of pressure from all sides to conform to one view or another um even you know within the fourteen thousand studies that you pick you you will see that like there has to be a balance of kind of ideology let's call it um I, i'd really like to get another kind of call or discussion with someone who who has worked in working group three actually that that would be uh, really great because it's for me it's one it's the most controversial part yeah. of it i i wonder like what standard they have for um as you said like political politically neutral because that like that's just something you can't take for granted ever <laughs> yeah um, yeah i mean as we talked with the uh, gramsci professors uh the other time you know politically neutral isn't always good it's not always a good thing to be politically yeah, yeah neutral. exactly it, it, yeah it might just translate into being like a, a bit um what's the word passive yeah like, yeah, yeah for sure cautious mm-hmm. yeah exactly um, um well, I mean, so that's one thing. I wonder how in the past um, sort of UN politicians and I guess like uh, domestic uh, national politicians as well have responded to Working Group 3's recommendations. Do they normally like advocate it? They probably, I mean, I'd imagine they would advocate it at least verbally, but not necessarily sort of carry any of its findings through in a major way. What do you think? Um, I mean, they, they can't, they don't have any power to actually, uh, make changes. This, these are just recommendations, obviously. Um, no, I know, I know. Uh, so I'm, I'm talking about the politician's response to it. Oh, sorry. Yeah. The politician's response. Um, I mean, <laughs> you know, the, I, one of our friends, Pablo, some of you may, may remember Pablo from, from one or two episodes that he was on, um, he, he kind of told me off or, or more like mocked me, openly mocked me in our group <laughs> chat for posting on Twitter that I was uh, quite hopeful that this would mark a kind of change, uh, a day of, of change, you know, the release of AR6 um, because of how just unequivocally um, absolutely terrifying it was to, to see the, those results, which we're going to get into for, for a little bit before Flight Free UK joins us. Um but, you know, Pablo was mocking me because he, he was like, well, you know, AR4, AR5 came out like uh, almost a decade, almost two decades ago. And then and not really anything has changed. Like this is it's not really new science. Right. It's just a synthesis of all the science that we've had in the past years and decades even. Um, so it's things that we already know is just trying to regroup all of it to say it louder now. Just yesterday, for example, I saw Nicola Sturgeon, um, the kind of leader of, of Scotland, um, say that that she would not stop a uh, oil and uh, an oil and gas uh, project, like one of the biggest one coming uh, that Scotland is doing, because she needs to look after jobs. And it's like, 
so you know this is like on the eve of of ar6 being released like today all the politicians i reckon are just gonna talk a lot of talk about yes we are we have to preserve the planet for our children blah blah blah. but at the end of the day the curve is still going up like it's it's we're not actually making enormous progress um and i think you know well, we both have our own ideas to why that is. And a lot of scientists have their own ideas too. And it's very often um, the blame is kind of put on, on consumerism, uh, on on capitalism often, on the idea that, well, that profits come first in every single one of our human endeavors right now. Um, and and the planet comes, you know, not even second. <laughs> it, it, comes, it comes last. Like the... If a company today producing something um, had to care about the environment, maybe things would change. But as it stands today, what they have to take care of and what they have to care about is is simply profits. Like there, there's not really any real forcing or in, in, or like enough of an incentive to put the planet first. So I, th- I think that's that's my take. Um, and I think the issue with that is uh, the big C word. um so yeah let's uh quickly go over uh i took some notes on the working group one paper so that you guys don't have to read the 42 pages so i'll go through them very quickly um compared to ar5 yeah so this uh has very new climate simulations and methods um the observed increases in greenhouse gases are unequivocally caused by human activities. So this is actually one of the key sentences of the, uh, the report is that these, the, the increase in CO2 and other greenhouse gases are unequivocally caused by humans. Like this is, you know, loud and clear, unequivocal, we are the reason for climate change at this rate, at this speed, at this level, like, there's no, you know, 97% of scientists bullshit anymore. Like, this is the sum of all science, of all the best science on earth. And it's telling us it's unequivocal. There's no other reason. There's no, no, no other chance that it could be something else. Like, we know. Now we know. So let's, you know, move on from that question and see what can we do about it. Um since uh, AR5 measurements have continued to, continued to increase, uh, we reached 410 parts per million of CO2 in 2019. Um, quite an important sentence as well was that each of the last four decades has been successively warmer than any decade that preceded it since 1850. So that's, that's really important. I mean, each of the last decades have been su- successively warmer. That, that's insane. Like, and I think you know, people anecdotally can feel it too. Um, our global surface temperature in 2001 to 2020 was nearly one degree Celsius higher than 1850 to 1900. Um, There's larger increases of temperatures over land than oceans. And due to new methods, we've actually increased our estimated increases by 0.1 degrees. So based on previously what we thought the temperature increase was due to better new improved data, we now know that that estimate was 0.1 degrees off, um, but like it's put the number higher, right? So this is another kind of, uh, this isn't, this is when, when people say that climate science is unsure, it's like, yes, it's unsure, but usually not in the, in, in the direction that we wish it was. Yeah. It's uh, 
unsure in the direction of oh no we're even more fucked um so it's uh, renewed some statements of um of diverse yet relatively strong confidence that rains are getting stronger um because of human effects glacier are glaciers are retreating due to human effect uh the global upper ocean has warmed since the 1970s uh again due to human effect um ocean oxygen levels have dropped and that global mean sea levels have increased by 20 centimeters uh, between uh, 90, in the last 100-ish years and due to human influence again. Um, we are at the warmest that we've been in 6,500 years. Um, and the previous one was uh, over a century, century period. And the last one before that was 125,000 years ago. Um, we're over the line basically for the past nearly 100,000 years. So we're a very, very warm period. Um, and the atmospheric CO2 concentrations were higher than at any time in at least the last 2 million years. And this is high confidence. So this is something we talked about when we had uh, Martin Siegert on the podcast. And he, he was t- talking to us about, um, about climate millions of years ago. And yeah, atmospheric CO2 concentration is a really great measurement to, to see uh, what is happening. And it, it just shows unequivocally that we, we've never had this in the past 2 million years. Um, and CH4 and then 2 concentration, some other greenhouse gases were also very, very high in concentration in the past uh, 800,000 years. Um, so yeah, there's some other um, stats and things. Um, I'm gonna maybe, in the interest of time, I'm just going to skip them over, but they're basically just saying that sea levels have risen, uh, glaciers have, have lost ice. Um, the uh, climate, the climate sensitivity equilibrium has been improved as well. And, and so a lot of like data has helped us improve things. But what's really interesting is the five new scenarios, right? Uh, every, every report of the IPCC sets out scenarios, um, SSP, which is uh, shared socioeconomic pathways, uh, as to how can we get to, you know, to where we want to go. And also mm. what happens if we end up going past somewhere, right? Past, past um, the limits. So I'm just going to try and find very quickly the, where is it? Where is it? I think it's around here. There we go. So you can see maybe on the um, screen, there are future emissions uh, causing future uh, sorry, current emissions causing future uh, warming as well as future emissions causing future warming. But we have five scenarios here. We have one that takes us to 1 to 1.9 degrees uh, Celsius, uh, one that takes us from 1 to 2.6. The third one takes us from 2 to 4.5. Fourth one takes us from 3 to 7 degrees. And the uh, final one is 5 to 8.5. Um, so that's quite quite a lot of, of uh, heating. Um, as you can see, maybe here, the, the graph just looks like a, a stretched out hand. I mean, it's, it's really different um, scenarios. But mm. something that's quite interesting is that the bottom two scenarios, so the ones that are, let's say, uh, more uh, desirable to keep it under at least uh, on this extreme 2.6 degrees, they only reach net zero in terms of carbon dioxide, for example, after uh, 2050. Like it's, it's kind of, as far as I understand it, and this is why, um, you know, I want to get someone who's actually written this because 
a lot of the graphs are, are seem a little bit complicated sometimes, but it does seem to say that um, it doesn't expect us almost to reach net zero before 2050. Um, and, you know, if the lowest scenario doesn't get any better, then we could be looking at the 1.5 um, degree target just being absolutely eliminated, like just, just you know, being shot out of, uh, of any scenario. Um, yeah, so I, I really encourage, oh yeah, there you go, simulate the change. This is just an easy color, <laughs> color map to, to see um, simulate changes uh, and, and what that would mean in terms of uh, temperatures. And I, I really recommend that everyone goes and just have a little bit of a read of, of what it means. Um, and I'll just finish with this before we uh, have uh, Anna Hughes um, from, uh, from Flight for UK. Um, this is a quote from the report that many changes due to past and future greenhouse gas emissions are irreversible for centuries to millennia, especially changes in the ocean, ice sheets, and global sea levels. Uh, and that human activities affect all the major climate system components with some responding over decades and others over centuries. Uh, so this is like quite damning kind of uh, from the report, basically telling us that, that yeah, that, that some of the changes are uh, irreversible, that we cannot go back on, on some of these um, kind of the, the, the CO2, for example, that's been released sometimes, just it will continue to affect it. Um, the climate or the, you know, some of the changes that have been uh, caused to the sea, to, to glaciers, they will, even if we stop everything, they will still um, continue to affect yeah. the climate because that's just how things work, right? Sometimes when you kind of go too far, it takes a long, long time. And as humans, we tend to think that a long time is a few years, but no, on a planetary scale, that can take decades or centuries. Um and yeah, and finally, just as the uh, even with strong CO two removals, uh, removal some changes would persist, and that um, yeah, the scenarios with lower greenhouse gases will have significantly weaker impacts on on human populations and, and development of the world and such. So, so yeah, quite uh, unequivocal, like I said, report that we need to get moving on this. Um, yeah, and now. Uh, so yeah, that, that concludes our very, very quick recap. Um, you can find the paper at ipcc.ch um, under working group one report AR6. And we'll just have Anna Hughes uh, enter the Zoom call now. Hopefully everything's going well on Twitch. If not, you can always listen to this on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, etc. cetera. Um, let's just let Anna in. Hello. Hi. Hello. How are you, Anna? I'm fine, thanks. Uh, thanks for joining us on the, on the short notice as well. I know that we only uh, sent you out the invite a few days ago, um, but it's, it's nice to, to have you. Um, we just concluded our, our little chat about um, the AR6 Working Group 1 report that came out today. Cool. Uh, scary stuff, but also very necessary. <laughs> I mean, the kind of... Uh, um, direct language, I think that's used that is very needed these days in climate uh, climate scenarios and contexts. Um, should we maybe just start off by um, asking you, uh, yeah, and also 
uh, just to, to point out, it is audio and video right now as we're streaming uh, live. But I had a bit of internet problem and I'm currently using my 3G to host. And it's I'm just seeing my 3G just go down and down and down, <laughs> and down very, very quickly. So we might have to stop the stream uh, and just it's recording and you can just listen to the full thing uh, when it comes out on Spotify and everything mm -hmm. else. Uh, so yeah, Anna, would you like to tell us a little bit about uh, about yourself, about what you do, and and uh, and what your your work uh, touches on? Yeah, sure. So I'm the director of Flight Free UK, which is a campaign group in the UK. Um, we inform people of the climate impact of aviation and inspire them to travel by other means, which is a little bit tricky at the moment, as I'm sure you can understand. Um, and our kind of behavior change model is to ask people to take a year off flying. So we run a flight free pledge, currently flight free 2021. We're about to launch flight free 2022. And the idea is that by challenging yourself to take a set amount of time away from something like flying, it gives you a chance to discover what the alternatives are. Um, I think a lot of people see reducing or giving up flying as a daunting prospect, especially if you're used to being able to travel freely by air. Um, and so doing it, just trying it out for a year, which is a challenge if you are one of those people who, who flies around um, several times a year, um, it, it kind of opens up your eyes to those, uh, those alternatives. And, and we find that many people, once they've tried it, they realize actually, not only did I not have a terrible year, I had a pretty good year and I discovered lots of other ways to travel. And now I understand more about climate change and how aviation relates. I'm gonna either give up flying completely or like continue to keep taking the pledge year after year, or generally just reduce the amount I fly because um, it's, uh, an important thing to do to reduce our emissions yeah um yeah and I, I guess that's a that's a good place to start so I, that's probably the first reaction most people have when, when thinking about this um commitment it's like well uh, like how how big a personal sacrifice does this need to be i yeah i just i just wonder what what you you know, know about that like what really are the alternatives does it really need to be a sacrifice at all or be regarded as yeah one. good question jamie so we tried to avoid framing it as a sacrifice um one of our key phrases is not flying doesn't mean not traveling and of course we're talking hypothetically right now because <laughs> international travel specifically has been very difficult this past 18 months um but in normal times whatever normal means um it's perfectly possible and very um enjoyable to travel without flying and we find that a lot of the time we are pushed into booking a flight because we assume that that's how you travel because uh, for many of us we uh, society kind of pushes us towards that as as the answer it's very understandable you know there are adverts everywhere um whenever you talk about travel in general you get the little plane icon and it's kind of they seem to go hand in hand whereas if you step back for a second and think about it differently you realize oh i can still go to prague for my friend's birthday or whatever it would just take me eight hours rather than four which mm -hmm. is that it it's actually fine because 
those eight hours are full of pleasure rather than endurance, <laughs> you <Yeah>. know, who, <laughs> who actually enjoys standing in a queue in the airport. Um, I'd much yeah. rather be sitting on a train, chilling out and looking out the window at these amazing landscapes going past. So. Or us long-legged boys have, uh, have always had a, a hard time. <laughs> right, I know. And, you, and honestly, you try and get out your seat on an aircraft and the air hostess is right there. Can you sit down, please, sir? Like, imagine on a, on a train, you just... My uh, knees are screaming. Like, ah. Right, exactly. It's just, um, it, it's a very enjoyable, relaxed, stress-free way to travel. Um, mm -hmm. It's exciting. You can incorporate different places. Like, let's use Prague as an example. You're not going to get one train to Prague. So, there, I mean, side note, it's logistically quite a lot more difficult to plan, but much more rewarding, yeah. let's argue, because... Um, you get to pass through Brussels. That's a cool city, man. Um, you know, you make connections in several other places along the way and um, probably Cologne or Hamburg. Um, and then you roll into Prague and there it is laid out for you, you know. So, um, yeah, we, we really try very hard to not to frame it as this is not a sacrifice. It's just doing things differently. Hmm. And in terms of time spent um, traveling, there's always the... Like the long, the long car ride to the airport, um, figuring out logistically as well. Like, yeah, how exactly. are you going to leave your car at the airport? Are you going to go by bus? If there is even a bus, I mean, like I'm, I'm from Belgium, and, and in Belgium we have um, uh, Brussels uh, Zaventem is an airport which is in the center, kind of uh, well center-ish of Brussels, um, and then we have Brussels Charleroi, which is like super, super south of Brussels, like really far away from Brussels, just not. It's like you know, because we're a small country, it might feel like it's close, but for us, in my head at least, it's kind of the same as thinking London is Manchester. It's just not. It's right. just different. And, yeah, like when and uh, going to Charleroi is a pain in the ass yeah. every single time. And it adds an hour, hour and 15 minutes for, for me, and I can't imagine for other people. It's like when they rebranded Luton Airport, London Luton Airport. And I was like, London, Luton is not yeah. in London, guys. That is that is mean. Yeah. That is mean to expect foreign visitors to, to expect to be in London when they arrived in Luton. God. And London Stansted. Yeah. Stansted is not in London. South End. That's yeah. not anyway, all of these. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. So I, th I think we can assume that like out of the extra hours you're spending in the train, it's time also that you might not be spending on the road getting to the airport right. or in the security queue or all these things. Right. Um um, I, I wanted to ask about your personal. Oh, yes. Yeah, oh, I was go just going to say. I mean, there's no doubt that traveling overland does take longer, but it's mm. as you just said. It's it's time. It it doesn't take that much longer when you factor in all of the traveling to the airport, waiting for your bag, all that stuff. But also, the time spent is productive time, enjoyable time, relaxing time, not stressful time standing in a queue taking off your shoes. <laughs> exactly yeah yeah <laughs> um you yourself have decided to stop flying 10 years ago right yeah that's correct about a decade ago yeah and um i saw on the now. website that... <laughs> oh really okay yeah. well i i saw on the website that you you your team is about nine people i'm guessing you know everybody on on the on the team is also flight free uh, at flight free but yeah. i was wondering if um if there were if there was anyone that kind of join the team but you know are, are there different levels of hardship uh, for you think even on your some some people that for example join flight free an organization like that do you think that everyone has an easy time on your work or is it are there different levels of hardship uh vis-a-vis -vis 
stopping flying. I don't know if I've worded it very well. <laughs> I think the word hardship is probably not quite the right word because, as we've said, it's not a sacrifice, guys. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, I know what you mean, though. Um, yeah, I mean, I made this decision a long time ago. So, you know, over 10 years now, probably 11 going on for 12 um, so for me, it's just a natural thing for me now. You know, I, I travel over mm -hmm. land. I travel by bicycle most of the time, by train the rest of the time, um, sometimes driving, but I don't own a car. So it'll be someone else driving. Um, and that's totally fine for me. Like anywhere I want to go, I can get there on a boat, on a train or on a bike. Um, I don't have, well, I was going to say, I don't have close family overseas, but I do have a cousin in LA and I do have a cousin in Italy. Like I do get it. You know, and, and, my, and my sister lives in Jersey and I understand, you know, having family overseas makes it just makes it a bit more tricky. Um, but um, yeah, so for me, that's kind of like I'm settled in that. I'm, I'm nailing it <laughs> um, for everybody on our team. So just to clarify, our team is made up of volunteers. We're a really small organization with limited okay. funding. Um, I don't even get a, a full wage. Um, but we have yeah two two paid members, uh, me and our social media officer, and then everyone else um, gives their time um, voluntarily, uh, which is really amazing. Um, mm -hmm. And everybody on the team, as you can imagine, one of the stipulations is that they've signed the pledge. So it doesn't matter how recently they flew. It doesn't matter if they're going to fly again at some point in the future. What matters is they have taken the flight free pledge for the year that they're working on our team. Um, and uh, yeah, many of them have kind of been, been, been inspired to reduce the amount they fly or to stop flying altogether before they even join the team. And then they see, like, maybe they see that we've got a, a vacancy and they're like, oh my God, that fits exactly with how I'm feeling right now. You know, sign me up kind of thing. So yeah, th there's lots of different levels and it's really interesting to hear people's backstories. I think that's the most inspiring thing. Like for me, my decision over 10 years ago was watching The Age of Stupid and that it was a film that starred Pete Postlethwaite um, looking back from the future at that time and asking why didn't we save ourselves while we had the, the chance and I think we're all asking that question today um, and uh, yeah so that was kind of my moment and that was it no more flights for me um, everybody else has got different um, in different stories different motivations different kind of penny drop moments and some of them have been frequent flyers have flown to Bali and um, Uganda and uh, New York and what have you um, and maybe have recently decided okay I probably shouldn't be doing that anymore you know what can I do instead right so yeah th there's a big mixture and and all we can do is share those stories and and hopefully inspire other people to take yeah. the same you know try and try and take those same decisions yeah yeah and I I, I appreciate it uh, like when I was going through your website I really appreciated the kind of pragmatism I think that flowed through it um as in you know we're hoping that you'll fly like no not fly but if you fly less even that's already a good thing right i, I think people mm. respond quite well to pragmatism and and for example like myself i'm moving to uh oslo for university uh this september and you know i i checked out <laughs> how to get to oslo you know flying has always been the thing on my mind because I, I i have flown um quite a lot in my life and it's something that I definitely want to reduce or stop if I can. And for example, to get from Brussels to Oslo, I mean, wow, <laughs> the the like it's really really difficult. And and I was thinking of coming back to the UK for the COP twenty six, but you know, without flying again, like there are, I think, um, 
blockages like for example money seems to be quite an issue like flights are, are super cheap mm -hmm. you know it's it's like uh, you said on your website it is it is a um, subsidized like effectively subsidized by a lack of tax on, yeah. on aviation fuel and other things and like when i looked at how to get from uh oslo to glasgow for the cop 26 by flying it would cost me no less than 50 to 100 pounds right but by all other means together um it would mean that first I'd have to just take a boat um, from Oslo to, I think, Newcastle, something like yeah, that. that. And it, that right, yeah. alone, yeah, that ferry alone takes 36 hours, which is okay, but 800 pounds. Oh my God. Ouch. <laughs> that's like, that's like my more than my monthly rent. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, that is one of so, the major yeah. problems and the major barriers because, you know, we can talk about how wonderful it is traveling over land and you know how what a great time you're going to have on that boat and and how your your emissions are reduced so much that it's you know it's going to be worth it but you're absolutely right like we cannot expect people to make these choices on a on a even a regular basis like even at all if um if the price isn't right because it's just not it's not feasible and it's not fair it's not like you know mm -hmm choosing to travel in a low carbon way shouldn't just be for rich people that's not fair um yeah. that's not right either um but yeah one of the main problems as you said is that there's no tax on aviation fuel which just gives aviation this massive advantage over every other form of transport and that's not fair either um so what we would really like to see is the carbon cost of the ticket reflected in or the carbon cost of the journey mm -hmm. sorry reflected in the price of the ticket so if you're thinking about something um, generally on the continent, train, uh, fast trains are super energy efficient, um, which means you'll be, you know, you can save up to 90% of your emissions by traveling by train. Wouldn't it be amazing if that price were also reflected, like your train ticket cost you 10 times less yeah. than your air ticket. Like that would completely yeah. flip the industry mm -hmm. on its head. People will be far more willing. Because when you think about it, if it, if it doesn't regulate for that, if it doesn't fix for that, then flying would become more expensive. It would be reserved for kind of the richest of the rich countries. And then yeah. trains and things would just keep getting <laughs> more expensive too. And then no one could just afford either. Yeah. I mean, it, it definitely needs addressing. And just, but just to point out, I mean, you said like flying will be reserved for the richest of the rich. Well, it kind of already is. Um, just to be clear, only 5% of the global population has ever been on a plane um, and only about half of Brits fly in any given year. So it is already an elitist thing. It's already for mm -hmm. rich people. Yeah. Um, and and you know, here in the West, here in the UK, we are all rich in global terms. But obviously, that's, that's, that doesn't help when you're um, it, like, obviously, there's poverty here in the UK as well. Um, but yeah, it's, it's not, the answer is not simply to make flying more expensive, it's to reassess the entire transport system and make trains far yeah. more accessible and affordable. And I, night, I night trains. That, um, yeah, I suppose that when you make the pledge, that, that's the thing, you're not just reducing your personal carbon footprint, you are sort of contributing to the demand for this new uh, transport right. system. Right, exactly. Like, I wonder what you think maybe like if if you know enough people did make this pledge what the transport system would look like you know in, in many years yeah time. well um Skander just said night trains and that's something we're actually seeing a bit of a resurgence of 
Um, so we've got a handy little gif that um, shows all the night trains across France uh, 20, 30 years ago. And there were loads. They were everywhere. And now there's about two, <laughs> um, which they are bringing back now. They're bringing back some of the routes. And across Europe, they're bringing back night train routes. And in fact, when the Eurotunnel was built, they had planned to have night trains from Glasgow, um, from Penzance, I think it was, Manchester as well, to go through. So you'd wake up in Paris in the morning and... Um, that never came to anything oh, yeah so that would have been I mean that would have just opened up the whole of the UK because um, yeah. yeah it that, that traveling when you sleep is just so efficient um, but yeah so we we are seeing it slowly go in that direction and especially amongst the Scandinavian countries they seem to be a bit more switched on I think there's a new route that's just been unveiled which is a sleeper from Stockholm um, which I don't know if it's running yet or if it's launch if they announced it and so it will be running at some point to, to where so that'll be to london oh wow okay yeah. well oh that could be my my, uh, my top 26 <laughs> yeah. uh, ticket then uh, yeah not sure if um, it'll be ready in time sorry <laughs> um, yeah <laughs> yeah well at least to go visit jamie but um <laughs> but you know something that i i was really really surprised that when the when uh, a couple of a friend of a friend of me visited uh, ukraine for example we went through ukraine for a month um, and also some other countries like in the Balkans is how um, how far ahead Eastern Europe is in terms of night trains, mm. right? Like this is something I just don't really understand. I'm sure historically something must have happened. That I don't know if it's the development of short haul f- flights in Western Europe, but something happened or just Eastern Europeans obsessions with trains, <laughs> which fair <laughs> enough, they're amazing. But like something happened that there's an imbalance between East and West Europe where in East Europe, there seems to be a lot, lot more trains and night trains, especially. Definitely. Yeah. Um, I mean, we just tend to we have it so bad here in the UK. Every year it gets more expensive to travel by train and no better. Um, and our night trains, yeah. we have the Night Riviera to Penzance, which is a great train, but it's really expensive. And uh, we have the... Um, the Caledonian sleeper up to Scotland, which again, a great train, such an exciting route, like waking up, coming through the Cairngorms. Oh my God, you will never forget that experience, but you really pay for it, you know? Um, so it needs to be more frequent, much cheaper. Um, and also you don't want to get woken up in Edinburgh in the middle of the night to move your bike, which happened to me. So no, nah, nah. <laughs> yeah, it needs to be a bit more uh, thought through, but yeah, kind of coming back to Jamie's point about um, the industry and demand, Um, Because, yeah, one of the purposes of this campaign is not just so individuals will reduce their flights. Um, It is so collectively we can show that there is a demand for this, because as you can imagine, industry and government do rely on what the populace says. You know, government might not always listen, (laughs) whatever. (laughs) But... Uh, they are trying to win votes and if we all suddenly turned around and said we're not flying anymore then they'd just be like okay right well that's you know they'd they'd be forced to listen and that's part of it like you can make a political statement by your consumer well with your consumer choices you can make a political statement by joining a campaign such as ours that says no I'm not okay with the status quo you know if that's the power we have as consumers I mean it might not feel like power much but it is if you buy an airline ticket, you're effectively saying with your money, I'm okay with this. And if you refuse to buy the airline ticket or if you put your money somewhere else, then that's what you are showing your support for with your cash, which can be very powerful. So, but, yeah. um, 
but I, I'm I'm sure Flight for UK also. I mean, do do you guys also push on the more um, systemic front as well? Because you know, one of the big kind of criticisms, I guess, of um, of movements like this or like others, like for example, um, vegan movements, etc., is that it really focuses on individual choices rather than um, changing the system at large. Like trying to change the system by individual choices rather than just trying to change the system. Um, do yeah. you sometimes get any accusations of, of sort of, I don't know, of like putting the effort um, in too much into the individual action? Um, no, it's not too much. So we're very clear about the fact that individual action alone won't save us. That's not the answer. We're very clear about that. And we're very clear that kind of along the lines of the answer to the previous question, that it is our individual actions collectively can change things. So can influence the system in certain ways. Um, we're very clear that everything is linked. So you can't have system change without individual change. You can't have individual change without system change either, because you know we need to have those changes to make it cheaper for us to travel by train, for example. Um, our focus of the campaign is more on the individual side with those caveats in place. But we also petition government. We also put pressure on through um, responding to consultations, through writing letters, through uh, the kind of standard like government pressure petitions and what have you. Um, and we also um, work with other organisations who do go more in for the top end stuff. So I think it's so important to remember that, not, that there is no one thing that will solve the climate crisis. We mm -hmm. all have to pull together mm -hmm. Our campaign is really important, in, in, but it's just one piece of the jigsaw. You know, when, when our campaign yeah. is seen uh, as a whole with all the other little things that are going on that add collectively together to this picture that will actually make an impact, then that's where you can kind of, you know, we all have our part to play, and but we can't do it by ourselves. You know, it, it is definitely all, it is that working together that's going to, have the impact yeah um i just want to go over some quick data because i, I um i think it's it's important for people to to know um you know numbers to, to have numbers kind of put out as well not just um um what's the word? Not, just, not just kind of <laughs> anecdotes or, or things like that but to actually understand what the the size of the problem is um so this is from um you know, diverse sources like uh, Our World and Data or, or um, the European Commission. Uh, per capita emissions for flights are the highest in the US, Australia, Norway, New Zealand, and Canada. So these are countries that um, the kind of top uh, one, two, three, four, five, the top five that emit the most per capita. Um, obviously, that doesn't <laughs> absolve the rest, but uh, just to give you an idea of the where the people who emit the most in terms of flying are. Uh, the amount of fuel burned per passenger has dropped by 24% between, in, between 2005 and 2017. So that is quite good, but um, that is kind of erased almost because the growth in air traffic has increased by 60% in that time. Um, and to give you also an idea, <laughs> flying Lisbon to New York uh, return, I think, generates roughly the same level of emissions as the average person in the EU by heating home for a year. So 
can heat your home for a year or you can take a return flight uh, across the Atlantic, which is a uh, pretty, pretty impressive levels of, of emissions. Um, and uh, in terms of uh, shipping, like where, where the emissions actually come from, I had it here. No, <laughs> where did it go? Jamie, did you delete my uh, my notes? Part of my notes? No, no, no. <laughs> Damn it! Where is it? Oh, I think I think they might have been deleted. But anyways, uh, there is much more uh, international flights than domestic, um, but that doesn't mean the um, international fl- uh, that domestic flights are any good. Like domestic flights do do seem, at least to me, like the least necessary sometimes uh, um, source of flight emissions. Although maybe in countries like like India or um, like China, like countries with quite large land masses that are extremely difficult sometimes to, to travel through by train and things. Like, yeah, uh, I think um, with regards to domestic and coming back to what you said about the US being uh, the highest per capita for flight emissions Mm -hmm. one of the reasons for that is because the united states is so large and the rail infrastructure is so shocking (laughs) that um if you have family on the other side of the u.s you will fly to see them um, or friends or vacation you know i think it's a well-known fact that many people or a well-known a well-quoted anecdote that um, the majority of um uh, U.S. citizens don't have a passport, and but if you lived in such a large country and so varied, why would you leave? You know, um, there's so many yeah. places to go uh, without kind of within the U.S. But yeah, it's huge. Whereas here in the U.K., we're a thousand miles from top to bottom max. <laughs> like we don't need to be flying. Yeah, sure, it's a long way from Penzance to uh, Aberdeen, Inverness, but it's it's also you don't need to be flying that necessarily. Um, you certainly yeah. don't need to be flying London to um, Inverness. Uh, or London to Penzance, um, or London to Newquay, like our esteemed Prime Minister did for the climate conference. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> anyway. Oh, God. Yeah. Um, but yeah, um, regardless of the fact that the UK is not on that top list that you quoted um, of per capita emissions from flights, we per person take the most flights. So even though our flights aren't as far, so our emissions aren't as high, right, like okay. out of every other nation in the whole world, we take the most flights. <laughs> so uh, yeah we, we really love yeah, our flights yeah. and mostly we fly to spain which we can really get to without flying it's just yeah. there. <laughs> i mean I, I do feel like sometimes even though there is you, you mentioned that um the richest of the rich fly i do feel like um the the fact that low-cost airlines have kind of boomed over the past uh, decade or, or more um ha- is kind of bringing in more numbers of, of people into flying right like i was seeing yesterday uh, on the when i was doing a bit of research i was looking at ryanair's website and they had 24-hour deals where you could go to uh, budapest from london for uh three euros or something like three or four euros that's like that's a coffee for a coffee you can cross europe that is absolutely insane um yeah. And, you know, when you see that, like, of course, you know, especially, I guess, maybe, you know, teens or, or young adults will, you know, who are sometimes very often on a budget and are looking for something to do with their friends, something will see that and be like, oh, my God, three yeah. euros, four euros for a flight. Woo, let's do it. So, yeah, but um, that's a massive part yeah. of the problem. Definitely. Yeah. So how do we fix that? How do we make sure that, you know, people 
can still travel, but um, like that doesn't have to be a sacrifice, like you said, but that the the emissions are reflected in the price as well. Well, I think that's, you know, we've already said it. We we tax aviation fuel and we reduce train prices. Like we we can't, we don't want to stop people from traveling. That's fine. We do need to be a bit realistic about how we travel and where we travel to. So um, the majority of flights are for holidays. So 65% are for holidays. That's not visits to family and friends. That's not work trips, that's holidays. Um, and um, our most visited country is Spain. Like I said, it's quite accessible. It's pretty close uh, by all accounts. Uh, you can get ferries there, you can get the train there. Um, but yeah, it's, it is about not, so the, the cheap flight frenzy has just encouraged us to do these kinds of last minutes. Oh, hey, let's go to Budapest. It's only $3. Um, whereas actually that realistically, that type of travel is not sustainable. So if we were to see travel in a different way, because of rethinking it because of prices or what have you, then we wouldn't be jumping on a plane to Budapest. We would be going to Budapest more thoughtfully for like a week or like a long weekend, um, you know, planned in advance, um, a, a fairly cheap rail ticket because we want to see cheap rail tickets, um, you know, with your mates, bottle of Prosecco on the train, job done. Um, <laughs> but we wouldn't be doing that every weekend because not only is it, does it take longer to get there overland, so you just simply wouldn't have time to do it every weekend, but also we, it, we, it, we would be more conscious of the climate impact of our travels. So, uh, you know, we, it's not that we're not going to go abroad. It's not that we're not going to experience other cultures. It's not that we are shutting ourselves off from the rest of the world. It is that we are traveling in a more conscious way that actually is better for the people we go and see um, and the places we go to see. And, and it's better for us and it's better for our environment and everything else. So, you know, like um, maybe that, maybe that international holiday will be once every two years and it will be done by train or boat. Um, and in the meantime, we do a weekend trip in, in Newcastle, in Bristol, in Dublin, you can get there by boat, um, in wherever else it is, because, you know, we do have some amazing stuff on our doorstep here. Um, part of yeah. what we try and communicate with Flight Free UK is that it's not just about replacing flights with other means. It's also thinking about where you go and let's not overlook these incredible shores um, and let's support our own tourist industry as well. That's another point. Um, I, I wonder, um, sort of, it, it must be quite challenging to sort of start a campaign like this because I feel like people will be very encouraged by sort of uh, a large group of people also doing pledges like, oh, okay, this is a natural movement that's, you know, making like social change beyond the individual. So it, I, in that sense, I think, I wonder sort of how hard it was to sort of start the whole thing um, from zero pledges or so. Yeah, um, to be honest, we were so pleased with how it started. So this was the beginning of 2019. It felt like everything was about the climate. Um, Greta Thunberg had started um, getting a public profile and she was talking um, about the kinds of things that we needed to do. And then you had Extinction Rebellion. Um, we were in the paper a lot. So our campaign was featured as, you know, this, this is the action we need to be taking. Um, and so our first year was really good, actually. We really rode that, that wave of climate awareness and we managed to kind of go up through the thousands quite quickly with our pledge. Um, 
and then COVID came <laughs> and it really has stalled since then. <laughs> it's been so challenging. And you might think, oh, well, all the planes are grounded, you know, win, <laughs> tick. <laughs> uh, but it's not quite that simple. And um, it's, it's very difficult to sell the, the climate, to sell climate awareness when what, we, what people are really worrying about right now is COVID. Um, and yeah, yeah we, we don't have half the media coverage we did to start with because covid um and a lot of people as well are just thinking well you know there's no point in me pledging now because i can't fly anyway and i can't travel anyway like even if i wanted to travel by train to budapest i can't so uh yeah, yeah it's it has really put a pin in the campaign which is very frustrating um we'll see what happens next year and you know that's all we can do and just we, we've really been keeping communicating the climate impact with people and and trying to say look we we have done crisis action with with well we're sort of doing crisis action with covid we can apply that to our climate response you know yeah. if, if we're staying grounded because of covid can we stay grounded because of the climate so yeah that's the that's the idea I guess we we now know there there is a, a like a great enthusiasm for this sort of thing. It's just a, I guess um, what one global crisis at a time. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. That's all we can handle, barely. Yeah. Uh, I want to quickly go over uh, something you said um, about culture. This is something that I guess I I, I personally feel like this is the the last hurdle for me to commit to a flight-free year or, um, you know, is, uh, well, I, I guess the, the technical means and the, the money as well is definitely something, but if that can be fixed and the final hurdle would be uh, the kind of cultural aspect of things, right? I, I feel like I'm always torn uh, as a climate activist, as someone who really wants to, to act and care and, and, and all these things. It's, it feels, and I think a lot of people I've talked to feel the same, being like being torn between wanting to discover the world, um, you know, past our kind of own country or, or neighboring countries, um, seeing what's out there, like really feeling the experiences of the world and wanting to do good by the world and, and actually um, stop these emissions. And, you know, sometimes you can't help but like look at the three to five percent emissions of flying and think well isn't it worth it in a sense to kind of to have that um that ill of of that small percentage of emissions for the amount of good that the cultural kind of openness that it brings gives now i'm, I'm aware that like uh, a very very small percentage like one percent of the world population does 50 percent of the flights or something like that i think um so it's only cultural openness for that 1% really, or that few percent of people. Um, but where are your thoughts on, on the idea of kind of the, the difference, the change that would take place in terms of how we view other cultures and, and the world outside of us if we couldn't fly anymore? Yeah, so I think that you've really nailed it with that. You know, it's the 1% that are um, causing 50% of emissions. Um, and, but, but everybody suffers. So back to the, um, I said near the beginning that it's about 5% of, of the global population who flies, but 100% of the global population is suffering from climate change. 
And it might seem like a tiny proportion of global emissions, like, you know, we, we're, we're quoting percentages left, right and centre here. But yeah, um, three to five percent of global emissions are caused by aviation. Um, but that's not because flying is low emissions. It's because hardly anybody flies. Like yeah. that is why the number is so low. And if you do fly, if you're part of a culture that flies, like here in the UK, your flights will almost guaranteed take up the largest part of your carbon footprint. So if we're looking, if if we're looking globally, then yeah, it's very easy to justify that flight. Oh, it's only a couple of percent of global emissions. But if you're looking at it individually, which is what we must do, because the global picture is twisted, we must look at it individually because, especially because our our carbon footprints here in the West are wildly out of proportion with people who live in countries where they are currently dying because of climate change. Um, and I'm not just even talking about wildfires in Greece and California, that climate change is reaching the West now, but people have been dying for many years in countries across the global yeah. South because of climate change, because of our emissions, that's not fair. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, if, we, if we're thinking of it like that, like, yeah, sure, I wanna go to the Maldives. Mom, oh my God, that would be the holiday of a lifetime. I cannot imagine how beautiful it is there, but I'm just not going to go because my flight, my return flight, just my share of those emissions would generate more emissions than someone in the Maldives does in an entire year. It would generate more emissions than driving a car for a year. A whole year of driving a petrol engine would be completely mm -hmm. like, would, would be um, equaled and, and um, topped by that single flight per passenger. I'm not talking about the flight, I'm talking about per passenger. And obviously like we all have to come to it in our own time. But my personal view there is it's simply not appropriate to fly on holiday when people are dying. And, you know, that, that's kind of the bottom line for me. And it, that, it does become a tricky conversation because as you've said, Skanda, like we, we do benefit from cultural exchange. We do benefit from seeing the world, um, but we have to also acknowledge that our flights harm the world. So if we are flying to see the Great Barrier Reef, for example, your emissions will actually directly cause that coral to bleach. So that's kind of ironic. We sort of have to open our eyes to that. Um, we also have to, we just, we're at the point now where we have to ask ourselves, what are the, what do we want? Um, and just to illustrate this, um, I was on a podcast with, um, with uh, someone about sustainability and she kind of asked this question as well in a, in a slightly different way. She said, I really want my kids to go to New Zealand and man, New Zealand, what an amazing country. Right. We'd all love to go to New Zealand. And she said, but I'm worried about the emissions. So I said to her, OK, ask yourself this. Do you really want your children to see New Zealand or do you want your children to have a future? And she was like, ouch. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I was being a bit obnoxious and like, like um, intentionally giving her really, really tough to her, her answer. But actually, bottom line is that's kind of yeah. true. <laughs> like, we are at the point now, yeah. you I know, mean, climate emergency. Something you have control over, I guess. Yeah more more than like our you know hyper consumerist like society or or i guess the the way in which our energy is created through renewable or not i guess that's something that we don't really like well energy for example like pure energy use is something that may on the whole like country aspect let's say on the scale of a country um pollute or, or affect the environment more 
I guess that's not really something you have personal direct control over. So you might as well control the things you can control. Yeah, I think we can all control where um, we go on holiday as well. And that's the thing. Like there are so many nuances to this conversation. Like we we live in a much more globalized world than we used to. Many people live in different countries to their parents or to where they grew up. Um, that does create difficulty because while flying to see friends and family is only about a quarter of flights at the moment that will that will increase as more people settle in places other than where they were born which you know i'm not saying there's anything wrong with that uh, but we do need to acknowledge that they, those journeys are very carbon intensive um but yeah it's 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 not an easy conversation but when it comes to holidays i you know people do argue oh but we need to understand humanity and you know let's um let's go and fly to these places so we can understand how other people live well the majority of our flights as we've as we've already said like most of us fly to spain um most of us fly on a flight with other brits we stay in a resort with other brits we drink cocktails on the beach with other brits like it doesn't actually contribute to our cultural exchange um it all it does been in england the whole time right and, and all it does is piss people off who live in barcelona who are painting tourists go home on their walls do you know what i mean like that that doesn't really mm -hmm. shout um world understanding to me um so yeah there's it, it it is it's all very well kind of saying cultural exchange but actually let's think about the reality <laughs> i was wondering if uh if you ever thought about the question of um the, the idea of kind of like fairness of Western, especially Western, but, you know, richer, let's say um, people being able to fly and then kind of saying, okay, now we have to stop. Kind of like we, we can't fly anymore, but you know, the like rest of the population, maybe some people who are just kind of able to, you know, the first in their families to, to be able to fly and things like that, you know, thinking maybe, well, you know, I've never flown before. Like, I'd like to fly. I'd like to, to try it out. It's this kind of notion of, uh, of, I guess, is it fair for us to, at the same time, have been able to fly and then also stop everyone else from flying? Um, just yeah. on, on the kind of, I don't know, I, I guess it's something I've been thinking about, even if I know that overall, you know, the, the impact would be very negative on the environment. Yeah, and there's that question in many respects and it's not just about flights it's about consumption of carbon and general consumption actually um so in the west we have high carbon high consumption lifestyles and they are seen as attractive by countries who are let's say developing terrible term but you know um that's not um i you know we're we're several decades centuries even ahead of other countries in terms of our industrialization and yeah we sell it as a, a good way of life uh, we you know people aspire to live similar lifestyles as we do um i mean there are many studies i'm sure that shows actually we're not much happier <laughs> like what what do our high carbon high consumption lifestyles really give us um but yeah that's a different conversation really isn't it um yeah of course it it isn't it is unfair to for for people who have had this privilege if you want to call flying a privilege um to then turn mm -hmm. around and say well you guys can't have it you guys can't do it but at the same time we have to think about the social justice aspect of climate justice which is 
our high carbon lifestyles are currently causing climate chaos for people across the global south again i don't really like that term but i'm not, can't, not sure what else to say um so so we we're causing climate chaos at the moment and then we say but we we're asking if those people are worried if they're ever going to get on a plane they're probably worried about that they're not going to feed their family you know and yeah. and of course it's not for us as privileged white people to like say to the rest of the world what they can and cannot do so we're actually very clear with flight free uk we are talking to uk residents that's why it's called flight free uk we are mm -hmm. asking uk residents who fly the most out of every other country who fly on holiday the most and who fly to spain the most <laughs> sorry i keep saying spain spain's a wonderful country please go there <laughs> Take the boat. <laughs> um yeah, that that's our target like if if we reduce the amount we fly on holiday by you know by up to 90 percent that would make a massive dent in our emissions. It just would. And that's where our focus is. All the other stuff is, is part of the conversation, but it's not the main focus. And, mm -hmm. and yes, we do need to consider that, but hopefully we can demonstrate because you can only show this by action. We can demonstrate to those developing countries uh, that it's not actually aspirational to, to be on a plane because, because of the emissions mm -hmm. or because there are so many alternatives that make you happier you know yeah. as, as just an example and i know that's a simplistic answer to a very complex question and not no no no, no answer, yeah. But yeah yeah i i do hope that um sooner rather than later will the the human mind will come up with some uh you know great alternative to to kind of uh, petrol or or um fossil fuel based flying but it does seem like with all of the you know solar powered flights and things like that that have gone on recently there still isn't really um any there, there isn't a real alternative on the horizon right um which uh does does uh is a little bit sad but yeah i i have seen the uh oh, i it made me so so mad because even with all this conversation right like i i know that when I take a flight, I shouldn't like when <laughs> I, I still know it in my heart, but when I see things like, um, I don't remember the exact name, but some company has just announced recently that they're trying to do, uh, I think it's like orbital flights. Uh, that would be 30, 30 minutes from New York to Tokyo, um, Shanghai to Paris, like <laughs> in half an hour. Um, but they would basically go, really 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 far up so that you can then just kind of fall down yeah. um but the emissions are i think 600 times that of a normal flight it's just madness i mean yeah. these are things that like we're sure to have to stop even before they get yeah. off the ground unintended <laughs> yeah. yeah definitely and that's where groups like ours come in i guess yeah. if you know it's about putting pressure on it's yeah. about having that conversation and being a spokesperson for the fact that we don't all want to rush around the planet and you know we we do understand that there's something quite wrong and quite bad about that yeah 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 um before we let you go maybe a, a quick final question about are there any um kind of campaigns that you're working on that people can go look at or um i mean apart from the flight free pledges um are there any kind of um projects that, that people can also join like for example um around I don't know, airport expansions or with MPs or things like that? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, I mean, the main thing is that we're about to launch Flight Free 2022. So that's um, coming in September. Um, for the other stuff, airport expansions, um, campaign uh, lobbying MPs. Uh, we do lobby MPs. 
um, people can lobby their own MP, of course, and you can write to your MP at any time and ask them what their thoughts are on climate action. Um, if there are if there are things that you think are important that you would like to see what what they would do about it, then that's that's you know we need our leaders to lead by example. Um, with airport expansion, there are a lot of campaigns going on at the moment. So we support other campaigns, but we don't campaign directly for that ourselves. Um, there's um, uh, so Leeds is uh, Leeds Bradford Airport is open for an inquiry at the moment. Um, the Bristol Airport is the, the consultation's just coming in now. Um, Southampton has just approved an air a runway extension. Um, obviously, the Heathrow thing is going to be ongoing for quite a long time. So uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, uh, I think it's before the pandemic and even now, many UK many UK uh, airports have plans to expand, which just doesn't add up to what we need to be doing, which is reducing our emissions. So, yeah. And, mm -hmm. and then, yeah, interestingly, airport bosses will unsurprisingly tell you that we can expand and reach net zero at the same time. And you look at the details and the net zero comes from technology that hasn't been invented yet. And efficiency gains, which we know are going to be outstripped by demand, because as you said at the beginning, Skander, that's what's happened yeah. historically. So let's um, assume that that's going to continue. Um, and also through offsets, which is a dangerous way of absorbing yourself yeah. of all responsibility for your emissions. So, I mean, we don't have time to go into offsets now, but suffice to say, no. it's not yeah, yeah. a solution for our rising emissions. <laughs> it's really not. Um, and listeners, uh, you can also, anyone that's listening, you can also uh, go on... I think we'll be releasing on Twitter and and Facebook and all that. And also on our website, uh, risingwiththetide.org. We're going to have a, an infographic actually uh, based on a scientific paper by a few different guests we've had on the show before about this specific topic about decoupling reduction and negative emissions. Because uh, like Anna said, it's, it's, it's just so important to, to understand that uh, negative emissions are they just ain't it <laughs> they just when you delve into the details like it's really scary to see um i, I guess it's kind of it's a, it absolves people of their responsibility right it's like mm. just put it on to the future and, and let them deal with that oh we've lost jamie um <laughs> <laughs> well i'm sure he'll come back other um but yeah uh thank you so much for your time anna it's been uh, really great to to have you, you. on thank you for for joining us for our first live stream ever it's it feels very different to recording a, <laughs> an, a, an episode but um yeah who knows maybe jamie and i will will end up taking that that pledge after all hey. maybe this conversation has uh, convinced us cool great <laughs> we'd love it thanks yeah. all right um take care have a great week and uh, Hope to see you around. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye now. Bye-bye.